Father, thank you for my friends at this church, Lord. I am so proud of these people and this church for so many reasons, Lord. Thank you that you have given them a mantle of responsibility through your gospel, through the opportunity to reach the community for Christ, to continue to build the church, to give it strength, Lord, so that you can do what you want through us and through it. We love you and trust you this morning, Lord. We pray that you'd give us strength to hear, humility to change, and the desire to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, The message that I'm bringing this morning is exactly what Pastor Mike said. And by the way, welcome back, Pastor Mike and clan. We're so glad that you guys had a summer vacation and that you uh, went cross-world. I mean, wow. Um, Let me say something about pastors on vacation, okay? There wasn't a time in 36 years of pastoring that I ever felt totally blessed to go on a vacation. It felt like something I was taking and taking away from the church. And... um, uh, as pastors and pastors' families, you know, as we're saying, we had a great time and everything. We're explaining that it wasn't that expensive and we didn't spend too much money or too much time or have too much fun because that would be wrong. And uh, it's just a guilt thing that we're just, we just carry with us everywhere we go. So I want to challenge you, dear church, that you not just say, hey, good to see you back, Okay. For you to say, bless you for going, for resting, refreshing, investing in your marriage, investing in these kids before they all grow up and move away. And from the looks of them, it's too soon. They can't go yet. There's work to be done. Oh, that was my, that's my best stuff, guys. You got to help me with that. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. They're like, what? <laughs> anyway, um, bless them, right? Bless them. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you. It runs along those lines of uh, when somebody hears that, that your pastor is going to play a game of golf and they say things like, I wish I could just work one hour a week. Um, you know, we've heard it all. I remember one time I bought my wife a really nice dress. And I'm not talking like she's not ashamed to shop at Walmart. Right? But I bought her a really nice dress from one of those nice stores because we were going someplace nice. And she wore it. And three people came up to her and said, well, we're paying your husband too much. <laughs> anyway. Okay. See those shoes and those legs in that mud? This isn't an accident. This is called mud running. And it's a legitimate sport for people who are hungry to challenge themselves to find the most within and the most they can push out. It's amazing stuff. I'll tell you all about it. When I was a kid, we lived right next to the school ground. And in the spring, all the water would pool in one corner of the schoolyard and it turned into a mud fest. And from somewhere mid-March through mid-May, my mother would say, don't you go near that pond. Don't you go near that slough. Don't you come home muddy. 
And I went near the pond and in the slough and came home muddy. And one time I was in so deep mucking around with my buddies that my boots got stuck. They were not coming out. Has, has anybody ever had that where the suction? Yeah. I had no option but to just walk out of those boots, walk across the mud. And I'm not Jesus. I didn't walk across the mud. I walked through the mud and got home. And uh, that was one of the days I discovered that a wooden spoon has many uses. And uh, my mom said, are you going to go into the slough tomorrow? No, no, ma'am. No, I'm not going near it. Not going near it. Mud running, though, is a real deal. There it is. Mud running is a real deal where people sign up, they train, they spend a lot of money to travel to these places, and then they, for six hours, go through a course that demands the absolute most of them. Physically, mentally, emotionally, relationally, and even spiritually, they are on the line pushing themselves all the way. Tough Mudder is one organization out of many that are providing these courses for people to sign up and take. And uh, they are in a league of competitions with other companies like Savage Racer, da-da-da-da. And there's, they're, they're happening right in Alberta. I don't know if there's in Saskatchewan, but out by Drumheller, there's a huge event every year, a couple of thousand people. And uh, these people are very serious about this. And uh, they push themselves very hard. Um, the point behind this is that these people work together. So there's the solo guys that are, you know, the, huh, they've been working all year. It's all they do is they want to go and get another headband and they're going to win and stuff. But there's also teams of people from their office, from the bank, from the church, a guy's group or whatever. And they commit to actually going out there and helping each other finish the course. And as they do this, they do things like this. There will be a 50-foot uh, uh, wall on a 25% uh, grade. And the only way to get up this wall is to climb on each other's shoulders and continue to advance. And the guy at the top that finally gets through rings a bell and someone else starts to climb over the pile and they just sit there and they are each other's ladder to the top of this pyramid. They have a slogan that uh, th this has gone worldwide and it's um, uh, multiple countries, multiple races all over the world, hundreds of thousands of people doing this now and their slogan is commit to the struggle. Commit to the struggle. If you're not going to commit to the battle you are about to face, don't sign up, and for goodness sakes, please don't show up, because you're going to get eaten alive. But these people go by the thousands, and you never see a guy just dangling by a rope by himself going, I can't do it. Everyone stops what they're doing, and they come, and they push the guy up the rope. Okay? These are my people, right? I spent a lot of time working out just waiting for a race like this to come along, but I've just never been invited to one, so I'll see you at the buffet. <laughs> Commit to the struggle. Now, if I was supposed to come up with a picture of one of these guys and what I think they look like inside and out, this guy caught my attention. That, to me, is a tough mutter. 
That to me is a savage racer. That's a guy who gets, commits the struggle and it's what he's about and he's out to prove it, right? So if you were to say, what is this guy made of? I chose these words. I said, this guy is made of determination and strength, sacrifice, focus, drive, and a desire to finish. That's who he is. Now, the interesting thing to me is that in definition of what the church is and who we are supposed to be like, we are supposed to be like this. We are supposed to be a people called out from the world to display a determination and a strength and a sacrifice and a focus and a drive and a desire to finish what we started. Better to finish what Christ started when he finished. My question is, if Jesus is, now don't even want to be offended by that picture and the word Jesus right above it, okay? Just go with me on my creative illustrative attempt here. If Jesus is the one who showed us what determination, strength, sacrifice, focus, drive, and desire to finish looks like, when Jesus did what he came to do, he was clearly committed to the struggle because it was not an easy three years and it didn't end with an easy three hours. So if that's the Jesus that we are supposed to aspire to be, remember, we, we have a, uh, something called sanctification to be set apart for the holiness of God over a lifetime. My goal is to be less like me and more like Jesus over time. Thank God he gives us time to do just like, take the time for the transformation to take place. If you can figure out how to make a transformation take place in 10 minutes, I call that religion. It's not about what's in here, it's about what you see. Jesus, do you like me yet? Look at all the stuff I'm not doing and look at all the stuff I am doing. You must like me now. That's religion. Transformation comes from us accepting the fact that it's not us reaching up to God, it's God reaching down to us saying, y'all need help. And we say, thank you, Lord, I do need help. And then begins the process of transformation once we trust in Christ and his Holy Spirit takes up residence with us, not spatially, but relationally, so that our spirit can commingle with his spirit and we can know God and he can live through us by his fruit to make him known. Which Jesus do you serve? Is that your Jesus? Is your Jesus a tough mutter? And are you a tough mutter? Or is this your Jesus? I think most of North American and maybe even international Christendom has this Jesus in mind. A cross without a sliver missing, Beautiful, handsome man with, you know, in this case, not blue eyes, but a lot of them, he's, he's Scandinavian, he's got the blue eyes and the blondish hair, so handsome. Even I'd want to take him home and introduce him to my mom. He's loving, he's friendly, he's good, he's kind, he's pure, and he's committed to the saints. Now, there's not a thing about that image that is not true biblically. It is who he is. It is what he's like, Right? But I want to suggest to you that the Jesus who was committed to love us all right to the finish, and now he is risen and at the right hand of the Father, and he's still doing it. 
I think he's that guy. I think our Jesus is far more rugged than we give him credit for. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why I think this is important. If this is your Jesus, then you come to the church and you come to one another and you come to your pastor and the leaders of the church and the staff of the church and you say, well, this is my Jesus and so you're supposed to be like Jesus, so I'm expecting you to be like super loving toward me and always my friend and good and kind and pure. And if you're not those things, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to make note of that. See, if this is my Jesus creating a safe, soft, easy place for me to excel and to feel right and good, even happy, if that's my Jesus, I guarantee you there's not a person in here that is not going to disappoint you. And this organization, try as it might, will not get it right. They will disappoint you. And this is why today, in today's churches, we're just bouncing from one church to another because somebody disappointed me. They said something wrong from the pulpit. They didn't do something right at the fellowship dinner. Somebody didn't visit somebody on time. And we look at the door and we go, I don't know, I don't know. There's probably something better out there. I better get out of here and go looking. And it's because we're not tough mutters and we're not serving a, a tough God, a strong Jesus. So we're supposed to be the happiest, not happiest, but joyful people in the world and in this town or whatever. And a lot of us are walking around looking at our shoes going, oh man, my church. It's just not doing it for me. No, it can't. Never ask another person to be Jesus for you or to you. It is a guaranteed recipe for failure, disappointment, and then separation, division, disunity, all the stuff that the devil is in charge of and that the community can't afford to see, but they've heard too much of it. And here we are again, drinking each other's blood. It's happening everywhere. And I am here this morning to beg you to stay the course, go the six hours, help each other over the wall, and when you get to the end, ring the bell. You need to know, I was not called this week by one of your elders. I was not, didn't have a quickie meeting with Mike before the service. He didn't phone me this week and say, hey, Colin, could you preach on something that... I don't know what's going on here. I just know that if you're human, born of humans, and you're living in this flesh on this planet, you're a sinner, so am I, and it's probably not going completely well. Amen? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So, church, I am calling you this morning to commit to the struggle, and I want to take you to 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 12, and Paul's message here is don't lose heart. And we do lose heart. And we have reason to lose heart. Oh my goodness, the pressures that are on us right now. Right? Forgive me if I'm crossing lines and making anybody uncomfortable, but I'm no longer sure about Ottawa, but I know that Jesus says, I put them there and I put them there over you as an extension of my grace and my law in this land. Obey them, pray for them, be a good citizen. And I'm trying. Aren't you trying?
I'm trying. Inflation. My daughter phoned me from the Costco parking lot the other day. She's got two kids this big, and they've got meat in the freezer that they bought from a neighbor. And she says, Daddy, how can our little family of four leave Costco without even a shopping cart? And it cost us 475 bucks. I said, honey, stand in line. We're all feeling it, right? This summer, having a pound of cherries is like having a steak. Look, honey, we got cherries. Yeah. We need to commit to the struggle and not lose heart. I want to read this incredible passage to you. So here's Paul. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, plain, the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God, small g, you know who I'm talking about, or Paul's talking about, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is in the image, or is the image of God. For what we preach, we is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Okay. Let me give you some backstory on this passage real quick. Man, I'm going really slow here. It's 10 o'clock. Service, summer service starts at 10 o'clock. There's only one service. So technically, I have another hour. <laughs> I, I don't mean that, but it'll happen. But I don't mean it. I don't mean to. Here's the backstory on 2 Corinthians. Okay. So Paul, years after the resurrection of Christ, has his come to Jesus moment on the road to Damascus, and he is converted. Then he takes time to train and returns ready to take on the ministry of an apostle. And he is a, he is a tough mutter. Missionary journeys, relentless energy, and he wants to go to all those cities around the Mediterranean and he wants to take the light and shine it. He wants to take the gospel and share it. And he wants churches to be planted in those cities. So the church can go forward. And he does it. One of the places that he went to is Corinth. 18 months, he preaches and teaches every day. And then he finally plants the church officially. 
leaves a leadership, leadership structure in place, and then he leaves to go and do what Paul does. He goes somewhere else to plant another church. Well, after he left, word got to him that the church was sliding back down the hill. They were not maintaining righteous standards, obeying the word, or working with or obeying their leaders, and the church had slid into sin, and they were accepting sin as their new standard. And the reason that Paul was notified, and the reason that it bothered Paul so much, is because these Corinthians were pagan, idolatrous, Greek worshipers. And they expected their gods, small g, to be perfect. Powerful and perfect all the time. And they saw that the human leaders that were in charge of the church were not just human, they were imperfect. And in some cases, the Greeks, knowing philosophy and religion and paganology, were smarter than the leaders that would have been left behind. And so they started to actually chide at the leaders, and the church became soft because the leadership was weak and sin became strong. This was the perfect storm for the Judaizers to come from Jerusalem to encourage the law of Moses alongside the doctrines of Christ and the person and work that he did on the cross. So the Judaizers show up and they start to uh, espouse and pontificate and teach the law and they take Jesus and Christianity and set it over here in the margin and they work very hard to make Moses and the law the primary thing. If you've ever read Galatians, you know that Paul goes to some lengths to say to the church at Galatia, are you kidding? You get saved by the Spirit, but you're going to continue by the law? You're going to learn to walk by the Spirit, but you're going to do the battle of being faithful to God in the flesh? You're fools. So the backstory here is that the Judaizers have come to the church at Corinth, and they are just dogging Paul and the church leaders like crazy and saying, look at us, we're rich, we're eloquent, we're educated, we're experienced, we're not some startup. Our guy's been going for several thousand years. And the people are buying it. So Paul hears about this, writes a letter, 1 Corinthians, and visits the church and basically says, you can't do that. You need to stop that. Right? But you know what happened under the direction of the Judaizers? Basically, the church at Corinth handed him his hat and said, you know what? We like these guys. They're sharp. And uh, we don't even know why you're an apostle. You weren't there when Jesus died, and you weren't there when he was raised. What makes you an apostle? They handed him his hat and said, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Second Corinthians is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth saying, I cannot let this stand. I have to attend to this. I have to defend Christ, his gospel, Christianity, its birth and its spread, and I have to defend my right as an apostle, as a man and a minister. I have earned your ear to read my letter and hear my defense. And if you've ever read 2 Corinthians 11, fantastic passage where Paul says, oh, do you guys want to talk about credentials for apostleship? Here's my list. Shipwreck, um, uh, bit by snakes, alone, imprisoned, beaten, thrown out, 
uh, stranded. He's got this long list that nobody could match. Nobody could match it. Fantastic. So that's the backstory here, okay? And here's the point that he makes by the time he gets to 2 Corinthians 4. So in, like, for instance, 2 Corinthians 3, he's talking about the covenants, the old covenant versus the new covenant. One is law, one is love. One is Moses, one is Christ. One is superior, right? So by the time he gets to, to chapter 4, what he's saying is, I'm not losing heart. If I was going to lose heart, I would have taken my hat, made my way out the door, and he'd never seen me again or heard from me again. No, I want to model right now. I want to emulate for you right now what it looks like to not lose heart and to hang in there because truth is truth, right is right, and I'm on the side of both. So he comes to say, we don't lose heart. God gave this ministry to us for his purposes. And he gave it to us for his purposes to minister truth with integrity, to help people believe to preach Jesus Christ as the light, to reveal the power of God, to faithfully serve through suffering, and to rely on Christ's life within. All right? So, verse 1. God gave this ministry to us for his purposes. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Think about God's mercy. It was absolutely God's mercy that he, by his grace, stooped down from his heaven to pick us up out of our spiritual gutter and not only teach us what is right, but take us unto himself, adopt us as his children, take us to his castle, and let us sit at his banquet table for eternity. That is mercy, folks. We did not deserve that, do not deserve it, couldn't earn it, won't earn it. That's religion, if you're trying to do that. Those guys are down the street. Well, I need to be careful. I don't know where churches are around here, so. <laughs> Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, he picked us up and he gave us purpose. You ever asked the question, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing here? Surely it's got to be more than just a job. And trying to find love and make enough money to own a toy. Go on a vacation. Surely it's got to be more than just paying taxes and just getting along. Right? We say, what's my purpose? And God says, your purpose is to excel at my purpose. To make me and my gospel and heaven and earth and the choice between the two now and then the choice between another two later, known to the world. Because of that, it's so important, it's so powerful. We do not lose heart. We are on mission. We are people with purpose. We know what this church is here to do, and we know what our part is in it. And folks, let me say, if you don't know what your part is in it, then you stay at it. Join that small group. Try and be here to learn from the pulpit and from others. Try and get involved in a, a group, a serving project. Say yes. Say yes. The slogan that we had at, at my church that I last pastored in Edmonton, it was called Imagining Church. That name got us in a heap of trouble. Because it sounded like we didn't know what we were about or who we were. We were just imagining that you know God loves us and we're 
mostly wear linen, you know. <laughs> anyway, here's, here's how I said it every Sunday morning. We are imagining, okay, what God could do, what a church could be, and who we could become if we would say yes. You have purpose. Don't lose heart. We have purpose to minister his truth with integrity, verse, verse 2. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Listen, folks. Every church I know has a right to measure its pulpit. You know, our pastor is an elocution. Our pastor, is, he's so sincere, but he's not a wordy guy. It's not like he's got the gift of the gab. He has to work pretty hard at the sermons. Our pastor's on television. Our pastor comes from a long line of pastors. You know, we, we're just terrible at that, aren't we? If this is being preached from this you're in the right church. It's about that book on this pulpit and anyone standing here saying, this is really all that matters. You're in the right church. So listen to me now. That here's another thing that you, you know, only the guest speaker can say. Because yeah, I'm having lunch and then I'm gone back to Smokeville. Right? If you are watching... Word of faith, preachers and teachers on television and sending them money because they have you convinced that if you sow a seed, if you send some money to show God your faith, it will be multiplied unto you or that, that sore knee of yours is going to get better. Folks, oh my goodness. That's not where you find truth. Okay, word of faith, preachers and teachers are selling something. And one of the reasons why people like Mike and me will never be rich is because this is what we're selling. But if you're selling something else, you're going to get rich. And I'm telling you, I've got nothing against, you know, a, a brother like Billy Graham, who at the end of his life had amassed some wealth from all the books and all the whatever. It's not about money. It's about people who are doing it to get money. I'm promising you something that God is not necessarily going to deliver on. And then here's the slippery slope. Oh, your money didn't increase? Oh, your need didn't get better? You don't have the right kind of faith. You don't have the right amount of faith. Why don't you send another check? Help us, Jesus. Okay, that's a whole other sermon for another time. By the way, Mike needs this job. <laughs> okay? So don't everybody be looking over at him going, who is this guy? <laughs> and who brought him here? Okay. All right, praise God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we have the truth. We're truth tellers. And people know when they're hearing the truth from somebody who is telling the truth. That's what Paul is saying. That's what we're about. That's why we don't lose heart, because we've been given a ministry, and we've got to protect it by producing truth from the word only and always first. To help people believe, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Does your heart ache? Man, 
your heart should ache over the people you know who know better. The truth is just veiled from them. I have shared the gospel with people I know and that I don't know and come to that stark realization, that cold moment where I go, man, I don't know if you can believe. I know you don't want to right now, but you're scaring me. There is absolutely no depth, no perception, no want, no will, no nothing. It's scary. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Why? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The reason that we need this church to do its work in this community is because the enemy is at heart or doing his work to blind this community. If he can find a way to unsettle Christians so that he can unseat Christ, he'll do it every time. And you know what's the most unnerving thing to me is that the enemy doesn't have to send demons through the door. Christians will kill each other. The enemy just stands outside and laughs half the time because we're ready to shoot each other because we're disagreeing about something. I once ministered at a church that had had a split because the youth group left the countertops sticky in the kitchen on a Friday night. I kid you not. Priorities, people. Sticky countertop, first person in, grab a rag, unsticky them. There doesn't need to be a meeting. I shouldn't have had that third cup of coffee. I'm a little edgy. I'm a little edgy. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is what the enemy's business is. This is his job. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy will use us against one another, use us against our own church, so that he can exceed and to keep Christ from exceeding. To preach Jesus Christ as light. I love this. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Right? These Judaizers were coming to preach themselves. And in typical Pharisaical fashion, one of the things that they had secured was the idea of a blessings theology. If I am keeping the law, God will bless me. That's why I can afford this expensive jacket. Right? They came preaching themselves. They were all pomp. And they loved it. And people are drawn to it. Right? You see some rich preacher in some big church and you go, well, he must be doing something right. Maybe. Maybe. I can tell you from all the years that I spent in the United States, I have been involved with some mega churches that would blow your mind. But when you get up close, they are a mile wide and an inch deep. They are not impressive. They're just impressive. Paul is saying, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as what? Servants. Servants. 
Servant leadership is a whole New Testament thing. There are books written about it. There are models for it. Churches try it. Everybody agrees that no one, 1 Peter 5, should be lording authority over anyone. Jesus said, that's for the Gentiles. But if you have a pastor, if you have leaders, if you have um, staff that will climb a ladder or clean a toilet, you're in the right place. Because we are servants, and we're not here to preach ourselves, we preach Jesus. For God who said, let light shine, Genesis 1, out of darkness, ex nihilo, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. In other words, you are supposed to be somebody, this isn't a guilt thing, you're supposed to be somebody who has adopted the very light of God within by his spirit and truth, and that light is supposed to be shining out to others, right? I have nothing against people who have wealth and can acquire things that they need. When it gets out of control is when you watch somebody getting more than they need and even more than they need, and now they're hoarding what they have and sharing none of it, then you have imbalance. We're supposed to be people who have the light and we share the light. Let me shine that at you. You know, when people, especially when I was back in my young adult ministry days, no offense, guys, I used to have young adult talks and they'd come up and go, ah, I just want to shine Jesus on the campus, man. Let me shine Jesus everywhere. And I'd say, wow, man, that's amazing. How are you going to do that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, well, me too. What can you do except Galatians 5? Let the spirit of God that indwells you, because you are yielded to him, right? Ephesians 5.18, don't let anything or anyone control you but the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit so that, flipping over to Galatians 5, the spirit can push his stuff out of your life. And others watch you and go, man, you are different. You are different. I'd have cussed if that had happened to me. I'd have quit if that had happened to me. I'd have hit him if that had happened to me. What is it about you, man? And that's when we say, well, I'm not perfect. Don't get any illusions of me being Jesus. I'm not. But I know him, and I want to be like him. Pushing that fruit out so people can see Jesus in you. And that is the glory of God. To reveal the power of God, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, if you had a massive treasure that was just worth billions and it was the... Would you keep it in a clay jar that could drop and break? No. We'd be looking for something that's titanium and steel and it's got latches and dials and guards and chains and we'd be protecting that treasure. We would not put it in something that could break or fail. And yet, God has placed his treasure in us. Jars of clay. Why would he do that? Because he's not trying to protect his gospel for, from human beings like you and me, knowing it, touching it, and living it. He wants us to do it. He wants us to try, and he knows we will fail. And that's why the doctrine of grace and the kind of God we love and serve exists, right? Grace is God's fail-safe for the fact that he knew going on the cross that we would 
fall and fail and flounder, right? Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, he went anyway, knowing that we would continue to struggle, and we do. I love the fact that he has put this treasure in jars of clay to show God's power to do what? Make me perfect? No, transform me into a person that I wasn't a year ago or the year before that, sanctifying me, changing me along the way. There's never anything wrong with you saying to your wife or saying to one of your children or one of your children saying to you, you know, a year ago, I would have chucked this phone through that window. A year ago, I would have broken that right over that cow's back. I actually counseled, you guys will get this. I'm a city boy, so I don't get this much, but I once counseled a young man who said, you know, can I meet with you? Yeah, sure. He goes, I'm like, what's going on, man? You seem really tense. He goes, I cannot stop beating my cattle. <laughs> I said, don't do that. He goes, yeah, right? <laughs> that was my rural answer to the guy. <laughs> to faithfully serve through suffering. This is big, guys. This is huge. This is huge. We are hard-pressed on every side. What are you like when you are hard-pressed on every side? Now, if my wife was here right now and I gave her the microphone for 10 minutes, she'd take an hour, and she could tell you what I'm like when I'm hard-pressed on every side. Going back to Genesis 3, we learned that a woman under pressure and giving way to her sinfulness will try and control. But worse than that, in my opinion, is men, when we are hard-pressed on every side, we will quit. And, and God said, you're going to have a terrible time pulling a crop out of that poison ground. And we said, I think we can do it. Open the door. Let me out of here. I'll show you how. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Anybody else feel like they're getting paid what they're worth? Get all the respect you think you need? And every day is just another day to prove that you are making a thumbprint on the planet? Yeah, guys. Yeah. Most of us are like, heck no. It's hard. Yeah. We are hard-pressed on every side, but, Paul says, not crushed. Remember last time I was here, I talked about the submarine? And the way to succeed in the Christian life is to equalize the pressure from the inside that is coming from the pressure on the outside. Submarines, they were trying to find the right metal, and they kept on killing sailors until they discovered the law of equalization, and they pressurize from the inside to match the pressure coming from the outside, and they can go as deep as they want. Same thing. Lots of pressure in our lives right now. How is it we are not crushed or going to be crushed? Full of this. There's your pressurizer. Truth. Truth. Perplexed, but not in despair. Anybody scratch their head going, I just... Uh but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. This one's a scary one for, our, for all of us. I, I think that since COVID, the world has changed. There's talk about the church, whether it should or shouldn't be free to do what it does or be who it is or what it is. Uh, we might be persecuted at some point, Jesus said, hey, if you've got my name on your lips, you're going to feel it. Rejection, even 
subjection, even persecution, but not abandoned. What did he say? I will never leave or forsake you, ever, no matter what. I'm there. Struck down, but not destroyed. Okay? Do you remember when, uh, when uh, uh, the enemy is, is talking to God and saying, uh, I'd like to take a whack at your boy, Job. And God says, he's the finest man I got. And he goes, yeah, but he hasn't been tested yet. And then God says, okay, you can test him, but you can't kill him. God is over your life and mine all the time. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's allowing. He knows the pressure. He knows the enemy. Don't ever think that you are an afterthought for the, enemy, for, for the Lord. You're not, ever, ever. All right, closing. Um, this is a little bit more theological, but let's just end on this because Paul nails it home here. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We carry around the, the body, the death of Jesus, in our body, the death of Jesus, talking about the spirit of God and the knowledge of what he accomplished on the cross so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. All of this, we do not lose heart because God gave this ministry to us for his purposes and to do it, we must rely on God. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. All right, I just want to talk about your church real quick. And this isn't divine knowledge or insider knowledge. This is true of every church I've ever pastored, every church I've ever visited, okay? We've had our share of problems and conflicts. Our pastor is apparently human and imperfect, you know, we were hoping for something more, something supernatural. We've talked to his wife. Apparently, he does not glow in the dark. It's disappointing. Okay. Giving patterns have changed. Um, ministry programs might have to be cut back or already have been. There's a lack of funds and volunteers going into the fall. Some of our people have lost heart. Some of our people are gone. And there are no quick or easy solutions. They just aren't. We're going to have to commit to the struggle. It is the only way to finish what we've started and to finish what Christ started. We're going to have to commit to the struggle. Right? We are hard-pressed but not crushed. We're feeling the pressure, but we refuse to cave in. We are perplexed but not in despair. We are challenged but seeking wise solutions. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're hurting a little bit, but God is still here. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're taking some hits, but we're not going to quit. If, if I could come in here as a consultant and you and your church leaders and Mike said, hey, we're, we're, we want to put together a new set of values for the church. What, should, what do you think they should be? I'd go, well, how about 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9? Right? There will be pressure, but we're not going to cave in. There will be challenges, but we're going to seek wise solutions, not just stare at them. We might hurt, but we know God is faithful. We're taking some hits, but we're not going to quit. We know what our mandate, our mission is. I like that. So what kind of church are you? 
Are you the tough mutter type church made of tough mutter type people who are following a tough mutter type Jesus? Right? Determined. We're strong. We're willing to sacrifice. We got focus. We got drive. We are going to finish what we started. More importantly, what Jesus started. Or is this your Jesus and you're just looking for a place that is loving, friendly, good, kind, and pure, and is committed to the saints. I once had a guy stand up in one of our congregational meetings, and I had just spent 30 hours with his daughter and her fiance, getting them ready for marriage, and they had a lot of issues to face. Then I spent an entire weekend helping them set up and decorate. My whole family's there. We're all pulling chairs and tents and whatever else we were doing. And Friday rehearsal and then all day Saturday wedding and then Saturday night. And then to save some money, they asked if we would just stay and do the dishes because it was expensive to have that included in the venue. And so we get home at 3 o'clock in the morning and i got to be up and preaching in six hours. And at this meeting, this brother stands up and goes, Colin, we've noticed you've paid a lot of attention to the people who are lost in our community. We want to know when we're going to get fed. When are we going to get some attention? Now, I'm a big guy. And I could throw that pulpit from about here to there. And that's what went through my mind was, brother, you are out of line. You're missing it. You're missing it. I don't want you to comment. I want you to commit so that you see instead of always long for more and more and what's wrong and what can I complain about this week. Help us, Jesus, right? Help us, Jesus. Last story. I pastored a big church, and uh, uh, I, uh, I got there, and you know how a pastor takes his first couple of months to figure out what's really going on, past all the candidating and all that stuff, and then you get to know who the real players are and how it really runs, and I was in for a lot of surprises, but one of them was that they took the offering at the very end of the service, and I mean the end. And I finally said, why do, you do, why do you guys do that? Well, there's two reasons, Pastor. Number one, it gives us an opportunity to rate the sermon. And two, to adjust our giving accordingly. I said, in other words, giving here is not an act of worship. Giving here is a grade. So I took the service and put the giving where it should be as an act of worship, where it's not about what I think about the pastor in his sermon or what I think about the morning in general. And then the comment, you know, the smartest thing, now I don't even know if you've got one, so forgive me if I'm stepping on toes. The smartest thing a church can ever do is get rid of a comment box. If you have a comment to make, make an appointment with your pastor. And don't go to an elder and say, I've got some things on my mind that I'd like you to share with the pastor. That cuts the pastor off at the knees, puts a wedge between the elder and the pastor, 
And now the elder is answering to the church member to say, oh yeah, I handled it. Divide your board that way. Don't do that. Got something to say? Go to the pastor. Let him bring it up to the elders and let him bring it up to the worship team or, or, or. And then you have communication and community. Jesus was committed to the struggle. And as a church, I don't want you to comment. I don't want you to quit. I don't want you to do anything but commit and then let Jesus pull this church forward as he pushes his fruit through your life and you change and the church changes and the community changes for God's glory and in his name. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, oh Lord, thank you so much for these dear people and for how gracious they are, Lord, to just let me swoop in here and tell them everything that's on my mind. You know, <laughs> they're just so gracious and I pray that you'd bless them, Lord. And as they head out to their family camp and then they head into August when it's preseason and you're trying to get people on the teams and everyone ready for September kickoff and everything, I pray this church would say yes, Lord, and yes to every opportunity to serve and give and be joyful and see what's right about you and your word and this church and you know, this pastor and this staff and the teams and everybody in it. Lord, if we would imagine what you could do and what a church could be and who we could become, if we would say yes, I think you could do and would do amazing things. We look forward to it, Lord. Pray that you would bless, keep, and shine upon these people. In Jesus' name, amen.